The scripture reading today is from Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. The word of the law. Thanks be to God. Our sermons during the season of Lent have been about what it means to live a cross-shaped life. More than anything else, the Apostle Paul saw his life as completely shaped by the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We find this theme repeated throughout his writings, but it's not just what he wrote, it's not just what he thought. His entire life was transformed by the cross of Jesus Christ, which poses a question. Will my life be shaped and transformed by that same cross? Pray with me. Gracious God, open our eyes, our ears, our hearts. May we be attentive to who you are and what you are doing and what you have to say to us through your word. In Christ's name and for his sake we pray. Amen. The birth of Jesus pretty much coincided with the birth of the Roman Empire, right at the very beginning of the change from what we now call B.C. and A.D. And for the next two centuries, there was a golden age of peace, stability, and expansion because of Rome. But the so-called Pax Romana, or peace of Rome, came at a cost. Numerous revolts and insurrections were brutally suppressed by crucifixion. At times, hundreds, even thousands at once. It was a shameful and incredibly violent way to die. It was reserved for those who were perceived to be the greatest political threats to Rome's peace and security, to the Pax Romana. It was as much a political weapon as it was a form of capital punishment. Everyone in the empire knew about what the Roman poet Cicero called the terror of the cross. For Jews, there was an added stigma because a crucified person was cursed. According to the book of Deuteronomy, anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. And so most in the ancient world could not understand why Christians, the first Christians, including Paul, why they made a, a crucified political criminal and his cross what is arguably the most non-religious and horrendous feature of the gospel made this event and symbol the focus of devotion 
and indeed the paradigm for living the Christian life. Paul admitted as much, calling it a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. He wrote this in his first letter to the church in Corinth. And later in that same letter, Paul gave what was arguably the theme verse for his life. He wrote, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. A little bit more subtle and more accurate translation would read, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus Christ crucified. The book of Galatians, from which the passage that we read this morning comes, finds Paul in a particularly feisty mood. Of the 13 New Testament letters that have Paul's names on them, this is about the only one where Paul skipped the usually friendly greetings that you find at the beginning of so many of his other letters. If you look at most of these other epistles, you'll you'll see that Paul frequently begins along the lines of, I thank God for you every time I pray but not in Galatians. Paul immediately launches in on them. I'm astonished, he said, that you are deserting the gospel. Paul is shocked, and he doesn't let up. Halfway through the book, he begins chapter 3 by calling them names. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Did someone cast a spell on you so that you've lost your mind? Why was Paul so upset? Well, he was writing to a non-Jewish, that is a Gentile, group of Christians who had responded to the good news that he had preached to them that salvation is God's free gift. It is earned for us 100% by what Jesus did on the cross. Christ did it all. But some new teachers had infiltrated the community after Paul had left, and they had begun to convince the Galatian Christians that if they wanted to be saved, they also needed to keep certain Old Testament laws. Circumcision for males, dietary restrictions for everyone, so that they could keep kosher. If the people did all that, then they would earn God's favor and be sure of their salvation. We don't think that these teachers were saying that the cross wasn't important. They were just adding to it. Paul did not like it. Not one bit. So to convince them of their error, Paul tells them an autobiographical story about his own religious journey, and in particular, a most remarkable encounter that he had with the great apostle Peter. Paul and Peter These two men are arguably the most important of all Jesus' followers ever. Together, they're responsible for over half the New Testament writings. But there was one time when Paul had to confront Peter, and he changed his mind about the very same issue that was confronting the Galatian Christians. Peter's reputation had had preceded their meeting, Paul heard about the vision that Peter had on a rooftop one afternoon in Caesarea when Jesus had revealed to Peter a banquet table loaded with all kinds of food, mostly non-kosher food. We read about that in the book of Acts. 
And then Jesus told Peter to eat those, that food, to take it up and eat it. And Paul understood the meaning of this. He knew that it meant that the gospel was for everyone, not just for the Jews. And not only was this remarkable vision Peter's cue to reach out to all without discrimination, but Paul saw it as a validation of his own call to preach to the Gentiles. And then he met Peter in Antioch face to face. And he was astonished that Peter turned up his nose when a group of non-Jewish Gentiles invited them to dinner and Peter said, no, because of what would be on the menu. Paul confronted him because Peter had fallen under the influence of a group who taught that the only proper way for a Gentile to become a Christian was first to become a Jew. Paul reminded Peter in no uncertain terms about the significance of the vision that he, Peter, had had to eat unclean food that afternoon on the rooftop. And Peter repented. He changed because Paul was right. The cross really is all that we need to be saved. And so Paul shares this story as an introduction to what then becomes a very tight theological argument that he makes to the Galatian Christians. The brief passage that we read this morning is the culmination of what he said to them. And for the rest of our time this morning, I just want to focus on a couple of Paul's phrases and a word. These words may be familiar to us. They were familiar enough to Peter. But if Peter could get confused and off track, well, maybe we're justified to just take a little extra care this morning and to see what Paul is saying. The text is printed in your bulletin. If you want to sort of reference that, it's right there. First, there is this word in verse 21, justification. You've probably heard it before. And you may remember, because it's been said from this pulpit more, more than one time, that the same Greek word that is here translated justification is sometimes translated as righteous or righteousness. Two translations of the same basic word. Righteousness. It's unfortunate that in English, righteousness often just simply means being good. Because in the Bible, as Dr. Rennick has said on more than one occasion, righteousness means to be rightly related, to be in right relationship. For example, if you are rightly related to the utility company, if you are right with them, it means what? You paid your bill on time. And power, gas, and the water won't be turned off. Doesn't mean that you're a good person. It just means that you're going to get your utilities. If you don't pay your bills, then you're not right with the utility company. You'll be cold and in the dark and thirsty. Even if you are a good person, you won't be right. It's similar with friendship. If you are sensitive and present and listen in times of need, if you're kind and unselfish, then you're right with your friend. But if you're not, your friend will start to pull back. And it won't be right with them. 
To be right with someone, that's what Paul means by righteousness. The Bible teaches that from almost the very beginning of creation, human beings have not been right with God. You probably remember the story of how God placed Adam and Eve in a beautiful garden full of everything good to eat, and God said, enjoy. God drew a line, though. There's one tree. Don't eat from that tree. Everything else is fine. Don't eat from that one tree. Don't cross that line. They crossed the line. And ever since humanity has been unrighteousness. We have not been in right relationship to God. And the human race has been crossing lines ever since, illustrating the truth of that very first Bible story. It was a week ago last night that some are saying that comedian Chris Rock crossed a line when he made a joke about Will Smith's wife. I know you've heard about this. It's impossible not to. It was at the Oscars. And then Will Smith definitely crossed a line, at least according to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And then yesterday, Smith resigned from the Academy. Will Smith is not rightly related to Chris Rock or to the Academy. In that sense, he is not righteous. And all this news serves to distract from the fateful line that was tragically crossed five weeks ago by Vladimir Putin. Russia is not in right relationship with Ukraine, or for the rest of the world almost for that matter. Russia is not righteous. To have righteousness, which is the same thing as being justified, means to be in right relationship. These are just two examples of our human dilemma. Because as I said, we've all crossed lines. We cross lines every day of our lives. And the evidence is all around. And it's bigger than our individual decisions. Fleming Rutledge summarizes the situation in her recent book, The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. She says that people in our day don't react well to the word sin. And she writes, what I mean is, they don't understand what you're saying exactly. Are you making a theological or religious statement? Are you claiming moral superiority? Are you trying to make someone else feel bad? People just don't know what we believers mean by the word sin. But we all know this Things in the world are not the way we want them to be. They're not the way they were meant to be. There is something wrong, and we all know it. People everywhere can attest. Things are just not right. Putin's devastation of Ukraine, the suffering of our nation, the world from COVID, as we continue to lose loved ones, as we watch the strain still felt by medical providers, first responders, the number of relationships that have fractured over mask wearing and vaccinations, teens struggling with mental health issues, 
public servants in a wide array of professions, calling it quits, throwing in the towel. Something definitely is not right. We all know it. After encountering Jesus on the Damascus Road, Paul became convinced that the way he and his fellow Jews had always understood as the right way to be related to God, that this did not work anymore. In fact, it never had worked. And he shared the journey of discovery in his opening chapters of Galatians. In his early life of Judaism, obedience to the law as a way to justify himself before God led eventually to his condemnation, not to his justification. Paul was not right with God, even though he was trying to be as good and obedient to the law as he possibly could. By keeping the law, Paul was trying to be his own savior, though. Now, if anyone could have made themselves rightly related to God, it was a Pharisee like Paul. He wrote, I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors than so many others. But when he encountered Jesus, it all changed. And now he writes to the Galatians, for through the law, I died to the law so that I actually might live to God. Paul understands that he is justified, that he is made righteous, not by obeying the law, but because Jesus died on the cross for him. Here, the word justification, again, same word in Greek as righteousness, might help us to understand what Paul is saying. What does it mean to be justified? Here's a trivial example. Every month, I'm required to justify the charges on my church credit card. On this next bill, I will report the purchase of a stuffed children's toy. Now, church policy does not allow employees to make personal purchases with our cards. Our director of finance and administration, Leah Screen, is going to wonder, why did Quinn purchase a stuffed caterpillar on his church credit card? And I will explain that I purchased the toy for a children's sermon. Now, does that change the fact that I purchased a toy on my church credit card, triggering suspicion? No. But it will put my behavior in a different light. I hope it will be seen as justification of my purchase. <laughs> but it won't change the fact that I purchased the toy. I will be seen, though, as justified, rightly related to our employee credit card policy. Well, as I said, a trivial example. But this is not trivial. For Paul, Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, that's our justification. It, that's what makes us right with God. How? For those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, when God looks at us and sees our sinful nature, God doesn't say it, see it and say, eh, that's okay. I'll just look the other way, turn a blind eye. No. To be justified by Jesus means that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus and his sacrificial death for our sins. And that's what Paul means when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ living in me. When I become a Christian, it doesn't mean that I receive some 
superpower in my life so that I am going forward able to avoid every sin and only do good by obeying every single law of God. No, Paul tells us that the minute we believe, we are treated as if we are like Jesus. And that when God looks at me, God sees his son. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The justification comes because of what Jesus did and how God now sees it, not because of anything we do. We're still sinful because we crossed the line of sin and have continued to cross the line and continue to cross the line even after we have trusted in Christ. But that's not what God sees. God sees his son. In Romans, Paul says that we believe in, when we believe in Jesus, that God counts our faith in Christ as righteousness. And so we find that we're righteous, we're rightly related because of Jesus, but we're still sinful. Martin Luther came up with a phrase to describe the situation. Now, Luther was a 16th century German theologian. He wrote in Latin, and I'm sorry for the Latin, but I think the root words are, are close enough, and I think you'll appreciate it. He said, a Christian is someone who is simul, justus, that is simultaneously, just, et, and peccator, which is the Latin for sinful or sinner. Simultaneously just and sinner. Am I a good person? Luther asked. No, I'm a sinner. Am I in relationship to God? Yes, I'm justified. Simultaneously, at the same time, I am rightly related because of Jesus' death on the cross, even though I'm a miserable sinner who deserves divine punishment. But the punishment has been paid. Jesus died on the cross. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So what does this mean for how I'm to live my life as a Christian? It means that Christians are aware of another life within us that gives us a different way of being in the world. When a woman is pregnant, she is constantly aware that there is another life inside her. And so what she eats and drinks and what she does, it's going to affect this other life. And so thoughtful women are careful and intentional. Now an expected mother eventually feels stirring within her, is aware of what's in her womb, whenever she puts food in her mouth. And in the later stages, every time she turns over in bed or gets up from a chair or feels a tiny little kick of the baby foot against the bladder. But all of this requires an understanding of what it means that there is new life within. So there's education and discipline and training to bring understanding to this new experience, this experience of new life 
within. Pregnancy may be an imperfect analogy to what Paul is talking about, but he clearly realized that he had a life force within him that was new, and it guided all of his actions. He was constantly aware of this new reality. It made him do things he otherwise never would have done. And it led him to conclude, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It is Christ living in me. Alan Jacobs is a distinguished professor of humanities at Baylor University, and he's coined a term, cultural catechesis. He means that we are being catechized, and this is a church word for teaching or for, for formation, that we are constantly being shaped by cultural forces all around us, particularly those available on social media, TV, radio. Calvin University philosopher Jamie Smith understands these influences, various forms of cultural liturgies, like liturgies in the church where we do the same thing every week, except these are the things that we do every single day and some every single hour out in the broader culture that shape and form us. And Smith broadens the concept from social media to include all the things that might call out for our attention and cautions that if we're not intentional about the way we order our lives, about what we do, we will eventually come to love those things more than the life within us, more than God. Paul gives an antidote to us when he writes, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To live this way by faith means that we will consistently practice this faith until it becomes second nature to us. We will practice weekly worship. We will practice daily prayer and scripture reading. Practice consistent fellowship with others on the same journey so that we'll be encouraged and accountable. We do these so frequently that they become habits, with the goal being to reach the point where there is this new Christ-like way of being in us as a second nature. The goal is to get to the point through long familiarity that we don't have to think about what it means to, to live the Christian life. That's what it means to live by faith. To borrow an analogy from C.S. Lewis, if you're out on the dance floor and you notice that you're constantly staring down and counting, you're not dancing. You're still learning to dance. I shared with the children that we come to church in Sunday school so that we can learn to fly. I saw some puzzled looks on some of their faces. I don't think they quite understood what I was talking about. They will. And you do. Learning to dance is the same thing. The goal is to reach the point where Christ truly is alive within us, such that who we are and how we act, and that it's so shaped by Christ that he has replaced our old selves. 
as Paul wrote in his second letter to the church in Corinth. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new because it's been transformed by the cross. Let us pray. Our gracious and merciful God, you see Jesus in us from the very first step that we take in faith. Lord, individually and as parts of this congregation and as a congregation, may we order our life together and live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us so that the old nature is not there. The new creation is second nature. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.